0: This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k 103se Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Hey everyone and welcome to The Global Inn, a show where we get to dive into interesting topics on the international radar. I'm Solomon and I can't wait for us to explore all these different topics and perhaps answer some of the questions we have on
1: the events that affects us all. I hope that this program introduces and sparks ideas and perspectives that may broaden your knowledge on international affairs. I hope you love the show.
2: Hi and welcome to another episode of The Global Inn. My name is Amanda and I'll be your host for this episode. With me today I have Harry. How are you doing, Harry?
0: Hey Amanda, I'm doing pretty good, thanks for asking. I'm really excited by today's episode. I do believe that we have something special in store for you guys today.
2: I think so too. What are we going to talk about?
0: Well, as you know, today is Europe Day, and for Europeans on this day we celebrate peace and unity in Europe. We commemorate the Schumann Declaration of 1950 that inspired the pooling of European coal and steel industries and eventually the creation of the first European community.
2: Exactly. When the European coal and steel community was created, it aimed to establish trust between European countries that were crippled by two world wars. With the free movement of coal and steel, and the extensive oversight of this production. The material possibility for armament was reduced. As a result of this, the European peace project has prospered and developed to the union that we see today.
0: Correct. So this year the EU has declared a conference for the future of Europe. The EU has invited all of Europe to engage in debate and discussions to help shape Europe's future.
2: And in today's episode we have invited Minister of EU Affairs Hans Dahlgren To have a conversation about the EU and some of the challenges the Union is facing. Hans Dahlgren has an extensive career in diplomacy, government and foreign policy. Since 2019, Hans has been the Minister of EU Affairs and represents Sweden in the General Affairs Council in the European Union. Welcome to the show, Hans. Was that a fair introduction?
1: Well, I think it was. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be in Gothenburg again even though it's uh, <laughs> electronically and digital
2: well,
0: we feel your presence nonetheless yeah. so hans how are you doing
1: i'm doing well actually uh, you know i got my first shot of oh. the vaccine last week yeah we read and, that in uh, the news i mean that age group that is uh, has a priority now and uh, i'm very pleased to to report that everything went well mm-hmm. and there were lots of other uh, people from uh, in my age group and in my neighborhood who were there and they got their shots uh, in the uh, here in Stockholm.
2: (laughs) That's great, we're glad to hear that. (laughs) Okay, so first I'd like to ask you Minister Dahlgren a few questions regarding the European cohesion. Sweden and many other countries are considered to be abiding by European values, directives and are additionally net contributors to EU. There are other countries in the union that seem to disregard these values and directives, and one country has outright left the union. How does the EU plan to halt this development?
1: Well, I think there are several ways to answer that question and several avenues to to go for the EU. But let me first say that uh, the fact that the United Kingdom has left the European Union does not reflect a, 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 de- a disagreement with the core values of the Union. Mm. I, I don't think one could say that that was the reason for why the British people in the referendum in 2016 decided they wanted to leave, Mm. or a majority wanted to leave. It's more that they felt that they are able to take back control over things, which I also dispute, but it's not not really a value thing. But we have difficulties uh, with the those very, very important values that are reflected in Article 2 of our treaty, Mm. which is, of course, democracy and uh, freedom and uh, and tolerance and uh, respect for human rights and respect for the rule of law, etc. And uh, in particular, we have had uh, several ways to deal with this. There have been a couple of countries within our union who have where there is a clear risk that they do not subscribe, for example, to the to respecting the rule of law.
3: Yeah. Mm.
1: And that has been an issue brought up in the European uh, in the EU court, in the Court of Justice. And uh, there's also been uh, decisions in, that have asked uh, Poland, for example, to change their system. But there is also something that we call Article 7 in our charter, which is a process whereby in the final end uh, a member state can even lose its right to vote mm. if uh, the situation is bad enough. Unfortunately, the rules for deciding about this uh, Article Seven is that you have to have unanimity, mm. except for the country concerned, of course.
0: But you do have and a possibility they, if, to reprimand. If, if you have a two,
1: two two countries who support each other, it's impossible to reach that unanimity. Mm. But there are other means, and we have just recently introduced a kind of conditionality when it comes to how how you can use the money that is paid out from the European Union for uh, various purposes, like, uh, you know, cohesion funds and uh, agriculture funds, and also this huge recovery program that we have started this year. Mm -hmm. And the conditionality is that one has to respect the rule of law, and if there is a breach. the link between the money and the respect to the rule of law is clearly there. So much of this money can be withheld, and we'll see if we can use that also as an instrument to increase the respect for our fundamental values. Mm. Mm. Please don't forget, don't, don't, don't we mm. shouldn't take it as if all people in, in these countries uh, are against the European Union. There is a very strong pro-EU sentiment in several of the countries that the governments have, Mm. not being so keen to, to follow all the things. So, so there, is, um, there is still uh, uh, context to be taken.
0: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there are different opinions in each country and not everyone is going to be a monolith on any issue. No.
2: Uh, how can Sweden leverage their position in the EU to prevent member countries from further restricting civil and political liberties, like Poland with their abortion policies and the anti-LGBT movement in Hungary?
1: Well, I think you, uh, it's fair to say that Sweden is, is, has been and is, still is a very strong defender of human rights. The rights of the LGBTI community, for example, that's no exception. Uh, also, when it comes to respecting political liberties, civil liberties and so on. And we will continue to voice these concerns
3: mm. uh,
1: wherever appropriate. And we have been among those who have been most actively promoting this law or conditionality when it comes to the linkage between rule of law and, and the budget. On the, the abortion issue has, of course, been discussed a long time. Uh, I remember when I grew up, uh, we had a situation where abortion was much more restricted in Sweden, mm. but it was uh, more allowed in Poland. So a lot of young Swedish women went to Poland to get their abortion. Now, you know, it's kind of the other <laughs> way around. And uh, this is, of course, we don't want the European Union to take decisions on health matters. We don't want Brussels to decide who's going to get an abortion in Sweden. But we, at the same time, are very clear that discrimination of the kind that we have seen in also when you restrict the women's right to their own bodies Mm -hmm. is also not intolerable from this point of view of values.
0: I suppose there's an issue here because both Poland and Hungary believe that these policies are within their own democratic prerogatives. Like, this is something that they should be able to do because it's democracy and they should be able to decide this by themselves. So how does the Swedish government position themselves on this issue specifically? And can you work in some way to protect democracy and civil liberties in other countries and within the union?
1: Yes, we can. And of course, we, uh, as, as we have together defined these fundamental values as a basis for all our cooperation in Europe, it's a fair uh, issue to discuss it between ourselves, and it should not be seen as interference. Mm. I can understand if people uh, think that we should, for example, we we in Sweden feel that we should decide our own taxes.
3: Mm. It's
1: not for the European Union to decide what kind of taxes we should have in Sweden, Mm. Mm. and we should not have tax laws on the European level. But that doesn't uh, prevent us from having a lot of views on how economic policy is best pursued in order to provide more jobs and uh, growth and uh, stimulate uh, uh, investments and uh, devote resources to climate, to prevent climate change, etc. But when it comes to these fundamental values, and uh, I think it's all very important that we talk to the people in the country's concern, mm. not just about them, but also with them. And uh, I, I know my colleague in the foreign minister, she has brought this up with her colleague. I'm talking with my colleague in, the, in Poland, for example, from time to time on issues like this, also with Hungary, uh, also with other member states. And uh, it's... Also a question of having contacts with civil society in these countries, to make sure that they understand where we stand. Of. But also for us to understand where, 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 where the, their reasoning comes from. And uh, I think this kind of exchange can also help move matters in the right direction.
2: I see. Moving on to the topic of uh, Corona. <laughs> uh, the ongoing mm-hmm. pandemic has highlighted many of the inequalities we have in society. Uh, as certain groups have been disproportionately impacted by the virus for example older people marginalized groups but also especially poor people how can the eu help in the fight against rising economic inequality
1: well I think the, the as you said the crisis itself has created more inequality mm. in the union it's very difficult uh, for many in the many in the labor uh, laborers to stay at home and work from home. Hmm. It's hard for people in the service business to work from home. It's hard for our health uh, people, the nurses and doctors and assistants in hospitals to work from home, of course. Hmm. And uh, that's one difference. We also know from studies that have been made recently in Sweden that uh, those who have run the highest risk to lose their jobs in the pandemic or those with the uh, lowest incomes and we also know that uh, people in areas where you uh, have uh, less uh, areas to live on where the apartments are small the homes are smaller the spread of the infection is also faster mm. so that's clearly a link between equality what's what you can do is to put a lot of resources into this recovery, economic recovery. Economic recovery will create jobs, and more jobs and more growth will also be able to work against inequality. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And uh, the the huge amounts that we have set aside now, I think it's about 8,000 billion Swedish crowns, they are meant to help uh, prevent uh, the climate change. They are meant to stimulate uh, uh, digitalization. They are meant to create investments in our member states so that we can move forward with more jobs, more growth, and hopefully less inequality. And I, again, this article two I mentioned about uh, the values of the European Union, it also includes the value of equality. So it's really a matter for the EU to work for equality.
0: Mm. Mm. Right, so uh, moving on, how do you think the EU should act to rebuild trust after they failed to come together on the two most recent crises, the migrant crisis and the current pandemic? And obviously, when I say fail to come together, it hasn't been an entire failure, but I think I speak for a lot of people when they say that they expected more unity in these issues.
1: No, well, uh, I don't think we, you should say that they failed. Uh, and, and you said it yourself, of course, that uh, but, but there have been, uh, of course, different.
0: Yeah, of course, not an entire let, failure. Let, but... let, let, let me uh,
1: make, give two answers, right. one on each of the areas that you mentioned. First, on migration. Uh, I think it's, it's really sad that still, only s- now, as six years after the refugee crisis of 2015, we have still not a European agreement on how to deal with migration. Mm. Mm. We need in Europe a a common policy in this field. We need to understand that what we do on migration must be done together. It is a common responsibility both to make sure that those who have the right of asylum, uh, that they will be uh, receiving that here in, in Europe, and a responsibility to make sure that those who do not, have a right to asylum, also uh, can return to their home countries. So those are that's a failure, of course, that we haven't agreed on that yet. There is a proposal on the table from the Swedish commissioner, who is responsible for migration, hmm. uh, which uh, which uh, is um, uh, now being discussed. But it's very hard to negotiate sensitive issues within the union as long as we cannot meet physically so that's uh, one reason why this has taken so time long time we think it's absolutely necessary to have a common take on this to have a common responsibility every member state must take make some effort to uh, uh, take on what is needed in order to assume the responsibility the other issue is pandemic i'm there are, i would say of course we failed in the beginning since mm. uh, many member states um, felt it necessary to close their borders, not just for persons traveling, because the risk that they felt that maybe we were spreading the virus, but also they, st- they stopped goods, even very, very important uh, medical material, mm. from coming into countries where these were mostly needed. So that was a failure. But I, I, I must say that works much better now. And also what the EU did last year in June, when it launched its vaccine program, and that in, in just a few months, it was possible to uh, make sure that the vaccinations could start all over Europe mm. on the 27th of December. That was really a, a fantastic achievement. Now, we were very optimistic there at the turn of the year because we felt now it's going to go so fast. It didn't go that fast. And uh, as you know, there were a lot of um, difficult deliveries, which made it uh, hard to follow the plans that have been made. So those who had thought they were going to be vaccinated in February, maybe had to wait until April. And those who wanted to get vaccinated in April, maybe we had to wait in June. But it looks now like... uh, we will uh, uh, reach uh, the goal of uh, vaccinating everyone about 18 who wants to do that by uh, uh, mid-August. and uh, I hope that we'll, it can even be earlier as I understand some people indicate. So that was not a failure. That was a success actually, even though the success was, came a little later than right, eventually uh,
0: was originally hmm. really hopeful. So do you think that the EU would have had more trust if we had a unified response from the beginning that, for example, all other countries followed Sweden or vice versa?
1: No, I don't think that uh, that was, would be. I'm, I'm not sure uh, the answer to that question. Right. And uh, but what I do know is that uh, you we, we feel very strongly here in Sweden and in many other member states that when it comes to medical issues, It is a national competence. It's not for Brussels to tell every member state what to do. We have, you know, also a very uh, decentralized health system where we have a number of regions that decide. Mm. It's not uh, always central government here in Sweden that decides about these issues. And there is also some responsibility with the local councils. So I don't think we we want to go that way. And, you know, uh, this has been going on now for more than a year, and I think Doctors and nurses and uh, medical staff generally have learned a lot from each other, mm. all mm. over Europe, globally also. And the fact that we now have better treatment of COVID-19 patients is very much due to the fact that we have had this interchange between the, me- in the medical profession.
2: Mm. There are uh, voices within Sweden that are unhappy with the fact that we give more than we get. Meanwhile, other countries like Poland can seemingly disregard their obligations to the EU and don't seem to get reprimanded for it. How does the EU work with this?
1: Well, uh, you know, we give more than we get. That's that's true in a sense. But in another sense, we are all getting more than we give. Hmm. Let me explain how I think. We have a, a system whereby the contribution from member states to the EU budget is uh, relative to the economic strength of each country. Mm. And Sweden belongs to the richer half of, of the of the member states and therefore we we pay more than others per capita we are uh, as it's called net contributors mm. so we we pay more than we receive back. But you know what we earn from being a part of the single market what Swedish industry that exports of everything that we sell abroad is going to European Union member states. If we didn't have this single market with the free trade and the flow without any barriers, without any customs, without any quotas, we would certainly be worse off economically. We would Mm -hmm. never have the same standard of living that we have today if we were just ourselves and could not depend on access to the internal market. And uh, therefore, I think uh, we are we are winners mm. also because uh, of this. Then we are also winners because we have a union that has been able to work together on some very fundamental issues, like uh, we are taking the lead globally in uh, uh, working against climate change. I mean, Sweden cannot do that alone. Mm. But together with 26 other countries, we have now decided that we're going to be climate neutral by 2050. And the fact that we in the European Union have taken this lead has also made others to go in the same direction. And we can really be be grateful, I think, that we now have a, a fantastic partner in this work in, in the White House in Washington. And Joe Biden has become president, and he's so committed also to fighting climate change, as committed as we are. So that that is something that we do together and where we cannot just be ourselves. So in, in the long run, on the bigger picture, I think we all gain.
0: So speaking of uh, climate change, do you think that Sweden is doing enough or would you like to see Sweden do even more?
1: Well, uh, I think Sweden is doing a lot. And uh, you see, I I mean, if you look at the changes that has taken place here in uh, this country uh, over the last decades or so, when it comes to how we how we produce our energy, I think almost almost every single uh, item of el- our element of what is called Watt or mm. uh, of electricity is now produced by non fossil sources. And uh, we have a fantastic uh, development in northern Sweden with the battery factories that will uh, enable uh, cars and trucks to run not on uh, gas any longer, but on uh, electricity through uh, the new light batteries. We have another interesting development in Luleå and in Gjellivåre with the mining company and with the steel plants on trying to uh, produce uh, steel without coal. And that is also a a really uh, progress when it comes to uh, meeting the demands of the climate crisis. Now, are we doing enough? Probably not. We will probably continue this way. We will have to uh, be climate neutral by 2045. We, 45 is what we have set as a goal for Sweden, and we may be very, we may have to press down the curve uh, a little stronger than we have so far. But uh, I think we are on a good way, and uh, you know, people are also seeing that this creates jobs. It it has a very positive economic potential for workers and for industry in Sweden. And these examples I just mentioned, what's happening in the northern part is is a good illustration of how fighting climate change can also be economically very attractive.
0: Right. So So I'm an optimist. Mm. So if you could just send a response to these voices that we mentioned before about the fact that we're net contributors, could you give them a simple yes or no in that is the sum of this, our participation in the EU, still worth it? Do we do we get more than we give?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes.
3: Hmm.
0: Moving on to the foreign policy aspect of this interview. The EU in general and its member states in particular have been criticized by human rights organizations for their handling of the migration crisis of the last decade. For example, some see our deal with Turkey to quote-unquote hold migrants out of Europe for monetary aid, as inhumane and something that is not in accordance with the eu values is this criticism valid and if so how should the eu handle this moving forward
1: well um as you know the overall objective of of the migration and asylum policy of the eu is to reduce irregular migration uh, to strengthen a safe and orderly and regular migration and to provide uh, the right of asylum for those who needed. And in all this, we also need to cooperate with uh, third countries. That's absolutely clear. That's why we had the agreement with Turkey in uh, 2016, uh, which certainly has uh, reduced irregular migration from Turkey to the EU and uh, also provides substantial support to refugees that reside in Turkey.
3: Mm.
1: But we have also have the uh, The EU has had uh, also cooperation with other countries in order to facilitate uh, return for those people who are not, uh, do not have the right to asylum. Of course, everything can be questioned and uh, discussed uh, from various points of view, but um, if the EU did not have these kinds of contexts and uh, tried to make arrangements with third countries, we would not be able to do anything really substantial in the migration field because we are dependent upon each other and we need to talk to other actors and not just to ourselves on this field.
2: Mm, but is this deal with Turkey a sustainable solution?
1: Well, uh, hopefully it will be a day when refugees will be able to go back to the countries that they come from. I mean, that, uh, that, is the, that is the primary goal, of course. So it's not supposed to be sustainable for the for all future years, no. Uh, but while the crisis is as, as it is, it has been uh, something that has helped, I think, both these uh, uh, refugees in Turkey and also has been able to organize our migration policy in a better way.
0: So the deal is better than to have nothing at all? I believe so, yes. Right.
2: A few years ago, the European Union started an emergency trust fund for Africa. One of the goals for the emergency trust fund is to improve the management of migration. In practice, the fund aims to reduce migration to Europe by creating better conditions for development and investing in security sectors of various African countries. There have been concerns regarding the morality of investing in the security capability Of countries like Morocco and Libya, that are accused of mass human rights violations, how do you balance these interests?
1: Well, let me say first that the emergency trust fund for Africa uh, has a much wider purpose Mm. than what you just mentioned. So it's it's uh, it's a larger objective. But uh, the 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 question to ask are you, are are we is it morally? uh, Right uh, to invest in the security capability of countries like Morocco and Libya. That depends, of course, on how you do it.
3: Mm.
1: If you do it with full respect for human rights or not. And the intention behind these programs is, of course, to make sure that we do not have the kind of suffering that uh, human trafficking has uh, led to for many people who have been a very, very uh, scrupulous, uh, unscru- unscrupulous. Uh, Business persons who put uh, poor, poor refugees on boats that are hardly seaworthy, and these people smugglers—they are the ones that should be prevented from uh, earning money on uh, this very exploito- exploratory business. So that's the whole purpose mm-hmm. to to stop this. The, this uh, after we are we are. I know that there is a clear requirement that the. Human rights compliance So EU funded projects is uh, monitored regularly and followed up. And uh, I'm sure there can can have been made mistakes, but um, then we have to learn from those.
2: Mm. Mm. But you say that the broader aim of the fund is to prevent human trafficking. No, and the broader aim for the fund
1: is to to help development in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. But the, the particular programs that you mentioned, they are aiming at uh, preventing trafficking,
2: yes. Mm. I see. Uh, during the past four years, the leader of the world's biggest economy, Donald Trump, has engaged in trade wars that have greatly impacted the EU. Within the EU, we face the same problem with Brexit and these issues are bound to resurface if you have another world leader like Trump or another Brexit. How can the EU work proactively to be better prepared for this? Are there policies that the EU can put forward today that will prevent trade wars like these?
1: Well, that's an important point We really want to uh, avoid these trade wars, and uh, I'm pleased that even though the United Kingdom has left the European Union, we now have a trade and cooperation agreement with the the Brits that provides for trade without any quotas and without any customs fees. That doesn't mean that it's easier. uh, On the contrary, it's more complicated to trade between the EU and the UK. But uh, we have certainly uh, promoted the free trade as a basis for our Mm. arrangement. I also think that the Americans uh, are uh, ready to discuss uh, these trade issues in a positive way. But I also know that uh, also the new president, Joe Biden, he has uh, a priority for having America first in the sense that he wants uh, public procurement to be directed mostly at American companies. Mm. And that's uh, that's their policy. And uh, I think we will have a, a, an interesting discussion on trade issues with him. Mm. What I don't like is what we have had a discussion in Europe about putting some trade barriers on export of vaccines. It's true that we sell more vaccines abroad from European companies than we receive from other parts of the world. But I think it would be ab- absolutely wrong to start a, a spiral here whereby we have more restrictions for trade. Because they will never help us. So the value chains, so particularly in the medical industry, are so long that we can never uh, have a success if we start by uh, start trade wars also between ourselves on, in, in this uh, in this field.
2: Mm. We would also like to thank our guest, Minister of EU Affairs Hans Dahlgren, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on the thank show. Thank you so
0: much for your time. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
2: To wrap up, I believe it's said that the future is informed by the past. On this day, where we commemorate the start of the European project, it is equally important to ask ourselves, what is the next chapter? This is a conversation that many of us need to be engaged in. There is a need for us, especially the younger generation, to reflect on the values that will shape our response to any future issues, whether they be inequality climate change, migration, conflict, and not least, pandemic response.
0: We've talked about how European cohesion and democracy has been challenged by certain member countries pushing in very different directions. Hans highlighted the importance of European unity in times of crisis and also mentioned that the EU has tools to reprimand countries who disobey upon agreed policies. We have talked about migrations, where the minister expressed disappointment in the fact that the EU has not yet agreed upon a common plan to deal with migration. In trade, Hans mentions that it's important to avoid trade wars and focus on free trade.
2: And to all of you that are listening, you are more than welcome to write to us on our Facebook account, The Global Inn, if you have any questions or would like to discuss the episode. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
0: Thank you. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.